computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to Intelligent Performance, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And if you want to talk about business excellence, there are not too many people quite as good as this. Welcome Trevor G. Blake, a serial entrepreneur who's exited multiple nine-figure exits. He talks about how you do it, what it's actually like to exit at that level and how did he actually spend his first day being a multi-multi-millionaire and celebrating his first nine-figure exit. We go into detail about what it's like and also what people mainly get wrong when it comes to building a big business like that. Let's dive straight in. Thank you so much for joining us. Trevor, welcome to the Intelligent Performance Podcast. It is fab to have you with us. And where I'd love to start, as with all guests, is what is your take on intelligent performance? Probably, thank you, Michael, for inviting me. I appreciate it. And probably different to what most people would say at this point. Um, I, intelligence is a very nebulous thing, right? So so academically, people would say, oh, Trevor Blake's quite intelligent. But actually, my brother, who has no qualifications whatsoever, is 10 times smarter than me. So I have a very different view of intelligence. So it's interesting that, you know, the brain, oftentimes we think that of the of the brain as being the center of everything. Actually, the the heart sends more messages to the brain than the brain sends in return. And the solar plexus sends more messages than the heart and brain together than go in the other direction. So for me, intelligence is, is that I call it the torso wand. I have a, a transformation course called Transformation Experience. And I talk about this, the torso wand. It's not about your mind leading. It's not about your heart leading. It's not about your intuition leading. It's about getting all three together so that you can make a smart decision based on a little bit of analysis, a little bit of feeling and that wonderful intuition that says go left instead of right. And so for me, intelligence is is using all of those beautiful centers of neurons in our body. Um, that, that's just that's kind of who I am. So. That's super cool. And I think it's not often you meet an entrepreneur who's accomplished as accomplished as you are. You know, you've got and we'll, we'll touch on this in the in the episode, but you've got multiple companies, uh, you've exited for nine-figure records, sorry, you've made nine-figure ex- exits look normal, um, and I'm intrigued as to what is it that you think most entrepreneurs get wrong when it comes to building, if, if that's your kind of take on in, intelligence in terms of, it doesn't sound, it sounds far more internal than it is um, logical, would that be? Ryan, Trev? I think it's both, to be honest, Michael. So, um, you know, 82, you know, I got, I'll quote American statistics because America has 4% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's lawyers. So they're obsessed with statistics right, to prove stuff. <laughs> and so, so in America, I'm living in America. I'm English, obviously, but I'm living in America, in Southern California. Um, 82% of all company failures, startup and small business failures in America, all for the same one reason. That's a small business association statistic, 82% for the same reason. Mm. And the reason is cash flow mismanagement. So so without getting into, you know, use intuition instead of analysis and all that kind of stuff, you can say quite clearly, most startups start up incorrectly because typically someone will come from the corporate world and they'll be, they will have been in one function most of their life. Like I was a sales and marketing guy, 
but I was smart enough to go around the office and be a pain in the ass to everybody else and say, okay, you're in distribution. What do you do? You're in regulatory. Tell me what you do, what are your issues? And I would take in a pizza or something like that. And they, they, every time the door opened and they saw me the pizza, I could see them go, oh no, not again, you know, but I wanted to know, I wanted to know how, I wanted to know how the yeah. whole company worked and that, that kind of thing. So when I started my first company, I realized I didn't need to hire anybody and I could save that cash for other reasons I could market and I could get big fast. It's all today. It's all about getting big fast. It's an energy thing. You can get into that if you like. But um, for for most people, they come out of the corporate world and they say, okay, I was a sales guy or I was a finance guy. I don't know this part of the business or this function. So they hire people straight away. Yeah. And for the first two weeks, everyone's busy and then it stops because nothing goes in the straight <laughs> And then they're on the internet looking for another job or they're, 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 you know, they're following their football scores or something. And you end up with this huge cash drain. I call it the internal whirlpool that happens very early in the life of most startups. And a lot of them don't survive that. So, so structuring in a different way. So I, I, what I try to tell people is treat your current job as pay training. Learn as much of you, as you can from every other function. Take it on board, let it, let it sink in. And then when you start, go with a hub model which is where you kind of contract with vendors and consultants rather than hiring full-time people because they know what they're doing and they don't need supervision. They don't need training and you can get on with marketing and growing and you, and you, you have the chance to get big fast. And that's really mm. what all the companies have been about is, is, is like focusing instead of focusing on revenue and profit, focus on valuation, get big fast and exit and get a nice big check and go do it again and again and again. It's a plug and play model. And it's a great thing to do because typically, you know, I've, I've, I've got from zero to say 15 million in sales, sold a company for a hundred million or more. If I was to continue myself, I'd end up, um, slowing down the progress of my company because I'd end up trying to go into a maintenance mode. So by doing that, I've basically taken all the risk out for the polluter. I've taken all of the, the, the problems and all the rest of it. I've proved the concept. The purchaser comes in, pays me a nice premium price, and then they build it into something spectacular. All the companies I've sold are to be really great companies, and and but I'm I'm really proud to be the guy that incubated it. So so I'm, I guess if I was to uh, give myself a label, it would be like a, an, an incubator entrepreneur, I think. Okay, um, interesting. And what it kind of creates the heat and they kind of hatch beautifully underneath if we kind of extend the metaphor of those little eggs. So just tell me how have you, you make it sound very simple, the actual execution of that I'm sure is a lot more difficult to, in, in some capacity. Why do you think it can be so routinely executed as you kind of inferred? I'm embarrassed to say, Michael, that it is really simple and I've spent more time sitting in a hammock than working in the office and, and sitting at the computer, I gotta be honest with you, because computers and consultants know what they're doing and they do not want you to supervise them. And they get really annoyed when you, you know, you, you pick, I picked the phone. When I first started out, I felt really guilty because I had this corporate career and corporate career, I look back on my corporate career and I spent 75% of my time sitting in an office talking about nonsense, you know, like we do. And I was really good at it. I was the biggest bullshitter in the office. And so I built a whole career based on that. And, and then I realized, well, I don't need the meetings anymore and I don't need to impress my boss anymore. And it's a supervisor anyway anymore. And I was thinking, well, what am I going to do? And I was sitting in front of my laptop waiting for an email and I'd wait for the phone to ring and I just sat there for hours. I, I must be doing it wrong. It can't be this easy. But what happened was I, I hired vendors and consultants who 
I've been doing this for years and years and years. In my regular career, when we had a, a launch, it was always like a rush. You know, we launch a new product and we were never prepared for it. Never had enough people, never had enough resources. So we would go to vendors and say, will you be our add-on for six months? But I just went to the same people and said, will you just do it for me? You, you, you beat my regulatory, you beat my manufacturer, you beat my distribution, you beat my sales and marketing. And they loved it because they, it was something different and they, they enjoyed it. And then for a while, I would be the guy that would pick the phone up and say, are we there yet? You know, have we, have we made it? And they were really irritated. So I stopped doing that. I just learned not to supervise and to go like peer-to-peer -peer trust. And it's been such a wonderful adventure. I mean, we've, most of the vendors are really good friends of mine now. And I, I go to the same vendors over and over. So what you end up doing is when you get it right the first time, when you I call it startup right. When you start up right, it becomes like a plug and play model. So you can exit your company and then you say, okay, what am I going to do next? And you yeah. already have a model ready. You just have to find a product to fit it, which is a lot easier than trying to create a product find a way to sell it, find a way to market it, find a way to do all the things. It's so much easier. I, I have a, on my um, website, trevorgblade.com, I have a freebie for everybody called The Practical Magic of the Five-Hour Workday. Uh, but I have to confess, I, I don't work five hours. I work less than five hours. But, but it's, I'm able to because structuring the company in a different way, but a smart way, an intelligent way, right at the beginning, just makes it so easy after that. And you, you don't, you know, you, you, you don't end up working 14 hour days and ruining your relationships. You end up with a very balanced life. So that, that's my kind of message. I'm trying to get all of that. So Trevor, give us some insight to, for people who may not be familiar with your backgrounds, like where did you, when you talk, when you talk, think about or uh, talk about these, these types of businesses you've built, give us some insight to what you have done and kind of where you figured out this model that you've now kind of. Yeah, you've now propagated to great success. Well, and the first business came about because I fell out with my boss, and um, that's you never win those arguments. So it's like the writings on the wall, and, <laughs> and then, you know, he's going to get rid of me very soon. And we we came to an agreement. So the the fallout was because I, I was responsible for commercial development, and and so we had a product. It sat on the shelf because everybody assumed it was too expensive to educate the customer to come in and buy that product. It was a really, really small market. Right. And I felt it was a smarter way of doing that, a more intelligent way of doing it, if you like. I felt it was a really, a really uh, better way. And I presented this marketing plan to my boss who said he would present it to the board of directors. And I did it three times in three different ways. And then I found out, he said to me, he presented it to the board and they said, no, I don't know if he ever did actually present it to the board. But in the end, I thought, well, sorry, I'll do it myself. Yeah, I'll fix it himself. And we had a big argument, big row, seven o'clock at night, and there were only two left in the office. And he looked me in the eyes and he said, Trevor, you don't have what it takes to be an entrepreneur. You're not good enough. Don't have a finance background. You've only been in sales and marketing. You don't know what you're doing. I, I, let me save you from yourself, were his words. And that just gave me all the motivation and fuel I needed to do it and pull it off. <laughs> so I decided to fix it myself and do it myself. I had no idea what I was doing. I wrote the business plan on the literally on the back of a Northwest Airlines napkin no. on, on the return flight home. And uh, we were living in this amazing, living high on the hog. I was earning a really great salary and we just bought this dream home on the water in Florida. Right. And, and I planned my conversation with my wife and I'm like, you know, okay, I've, I, I got it down almost word perfect. How am I going to sell this idea that we're starting our own company to it? I opened the front door and she said, oh, finally you're starting your own company. 
can see it in your eyes. And it just started like that. So that's basically how you, how it, I didn't know what I was doing. I still don't. Um, but we have, we're smart, right? We're intelligent people. We figure it out. So tell me what was the business and how did you, when you say you, you went back to the existing vendors that you were working with, what, you know, what were you, what was the products you selling? So I took the product we had on the shelf. I went back to my boss, John, and I, I said, well, I'll take the, I'll buy the rights for that and I'll do it myself. And he, at first he said, no. Um, and then it was 18 months before I actually got the rights to that product. And, and the only reason I got the rights was they were running out of cash fast and I was offering them, I didn't have the money, but I was offering them 3 million for the rights to this product for which there were all, a medical product and there were only 300 patients in the world. It was very rare disease in babies. And this product solved the problem. I couldn't understand why we wouldn't even give it away, let alone make this this uh, business work. So, yep. so that's what I started with, with this one thing. And I always remember a guy talking to a really uh, smart man, George Rothman. He was he built a, com- a biotech company called Amgen from zero to 60 billion. And I was lucky enough to cross his path a couple of times. Wow. And he was in his 70s when I crossed his path. And and. I was waxing lyrical about my great idea for this product with him and he put his hand up. It was almost like, it was like dad and son, you know, they put his hand up like, shut up. <laughs> and he said, you don't know what business you're in till you get in the business, just start it and figure it out. And I didn't understand how profound that advice was until I did learn it. So I started, started working on this product. And that, that meant that I had to go and talk to certain people I'd never met before in my life. And they said, oh, this is a great idea. I like your model. Have you thought about this product as well and that product as well? And so within a year, instead of having one product, I ended up with five. Right. And because I, when I had the one product, I couldn't get investors because it's too small. When I had five lined up, I was able to raise 28 million in six weeks. And it just taught me this completely different game, you know, like the, the thinking big, um, starting without trying to figure it all out before you start. I didn't even have a business plan. You know, the, the investors were saying, well, where's your business plan? I said, I haven't got one, don't have time. Uh, and then when it came down to the fact that, oh, you've got all this other stuff, you've got a portfolio, ah, yeah. we don't need a business. We don't need your business plan. I used to find investors ask for a business plan. It's just a way to get you out of the office, you know? <laughs> got you. Interesting. So your first company, you built from, so I'm guessing there were no sales. Uh, of that initial product and then and you're so you're selling this in the hospitals day uh, what kind of uh distribution were you going with no i did it differently because it's such a such a rare disease and so few patients you can't do it the standard way because for me to to for me to you know get my product in front of all the physicians in the united states would cost a fortune it cost millions mm-hmm. and millions million. so i had to do it differently so what what i came up with was and i don't know if i came up with it or it was an idea someone put in my head or planted um it's such a specialist product. I, I I took the number of physicians in the United States and I started to segment them down into who's the most likely to ever encounter one of these rare diseases. And then I, I got them together all in a room and their egos were massive because they were experts, experts within the experts in the, in the room. And I said, you know, this is what we can do. We have the product, we have the solution, but we need to know how to diagnose. You need to tell everybody else how to diagnose and find these patients. And I just gave them educational kits and they went, they became my sales force. They couldn't wait to get on the pedestal and show the rest, show the other physicians how smart they were. And so I really did it. That was, my investment was more in education than anything. And that's, and then, and then the thing took off. So we went from zero to 
you know, several million, probably, I think with that product, probably 10 to 12 million a year in about two years, but it was almost all profit. It was like 80% profit. Um, and then that allowed us to then to go and look at other products and other ideas and bring the other, you know, the other portfolio together. So. And so in the pharmaceutical space, I guess once you land a physician, as an example, or once you develop a relationship there, if you do right by them, then you can keep going back to them with multiple different options, I'm guessing, especially if you're in the uh, like a pediatrician or something like that. Yeah, because we made them the hero. Right. Because they became the ones with the solution and they were the ones that were educating all the other people who weren't at their level yet. And they were they were saying, you need to do this, you need to diagnose this way, you need to use this product. And it made, you know, one of the uh, huge challenges, you, you might, I don't know if you know the business, but most physicians are so frustrated because everyone complains all the time because it's so hard to cure stuff and it's so hard to diagnose. And yep. they're always, they're always being told they're no good, you know. So to give to put in the hands of a really wonderfully expert physician a solution to a problem, they will become almost evangelical for, for that thing. That, that's been my approach. I kept it really small, really simple, all about education, and and it's worked really well. Um, so in terms of your marketing effort, very obviously it's like B two B setup, and so that's why you found educating non-sales and that's why you know at the top of the call when even before we hit uh record your keyword was you know authenticity right in terms of mm -hmm. your sales marketing approach or kind of just life in general so where do you think people well actually why is authenticity not seen as the game changer do you reckon i think i think uh it has to do with, and this is just an opinion, not based on any science, but I meet a lot of entrepreneurs and writers, self-help writers, yeah. whose attitude is what's in it for me. How much am I going to make from this book? And what's my royalty going to be? And I think that that's what I call the old masculine energy, right? It's a linear energy. It's very slow, clipboard mentality. And I, I, I feel very strongly as a, as a physicist who studies energy a lot, in the last few years, the energy switched dramatically into this kind of swirling energy. It's almost like a tornado. It's very fast, get big, fast mentality. And the attitude, the attitude that goes with that energy is how do I contribute? Not what's in it for me because energy is so, so the more impact we have, the, the, the bigger, the solution we provide the more we get back as a human being. So, so and Trevor G. Blake, and my transformation experience on TrevorGBlake.com, I have a thing called the grocery store challenge. And I, I teach people to go out to the grocery store, find the most miserable looking person behind the counter, that typically the deli counter, <laughs> that they can find, and then go up to them and use their name and ask them for advice and lift them up, not for them, but to feel what that resonant energy feels like for you. And so I do that in businesses too. So if you have a business where it's authentically wanting to solve a problem for the end user, which in this case is a mother of a little child, mm. and, and you keep that at the heart of everything that you do, then all the other decisions become almost just small details, like what's the price, what's the distribution. It's like they, they're not things you have to really think about very much. But getting the getting the solution right is the number one thing for me. And that's what I'm doing in self-help and personal development. It's showing people that I am as flawed as everybody is. I have as much self-doubt as anybody who's in the room. I mess up as much as anybody who's in the room. But I have a science-based program that says if you do think things this way, it will improve. You will find solutions. And that doesn't exist in self-help and personal development. It doesn't exist in entrepreneurship as much as it should. 
Interesting. And you think it's because people are looking at that, well, what's in it for me? What's the commercial model which is going to benefit me rather than just focusing and kind of almost, is it trusting that it's all going to work out and the universe will kind of provide? Yeah, there's a little bit of that. I mean, so everything in the universe is made of energy. Energy works in certain ways. It can either be created or destroyed, only converted into other forms. And so you don't need to believe any of that or think about it too much. You just need to use it to your advantage, which is basically, you know, I have a winning idea. I'll convert that into a company. I have a solution. I'll convert that into an impactful product for somebody. It's, it's really just conversion of energy and same with self-help. You know, it's like, you know, I have, I have, um, some knowledge of quantum physics and I can show you how to convert as a physicist, I can show you how to convert the energy of thoughts into actual things and the energy of speaking and writing into success. It's just conversion and that's that's all we do. I mean, as entrepreneurs, we just fix it. Interesting. So you're injecting energy into a space and then helping redirect that energy into something which turns into the cash or, uh, or a solution for someone in, in particular. Yeah, and I, cash is the same. It's just it's, money is just energy. It's just conversion yeah. of uh, labor and exchange. It's, it's very simple. I, I, so one of the things I try to also teach is, um, you know, improving one's relationship with money because most right. people have a really bad relationship with money. And to talk about money seems crass, particularly for an Englishman. Like in England, yeah, just don't, sure. don't mention, you don't mention money. <laughs> and and oh, how common, you know, <laughs> you just don't. Yeah, but so I think people to get used to talking about money as energy, not as a thing to aim for or to gather or to or to hoard, but a thing mm. that a thing that's flow. How to get used to more and more flow of money energy, and then that's you know it's it's fun. It makes it so. And talk talk to me around this getting big fast piece because I think it's obviously a lot of people start out on an entrepreneurial journey. It's kind of like the dream to do these multiple you know big big ticket exits. Um, I might come on to that in a minute in terms of what, what it's actually like to exit at a, at a big level. But what, what do you mean when it's getting big fast and why do you think it's the kind of the flavor of the month or as you said, more spiritually, more like kind of like tornado energy piece? Yeah, it's a change in energy. It's, this energy hasn't changed since 1284. So it's it's big when it changes, so it's a big deal. You, could, you don't need to understand it or even think about it. You just need to go to your local mall or your high street and look around at all the big companies that were in the books, good to great and built to last, that don't exist anymore. Yeah. And, you know, you go back uh, 25 years, the average age of a publicly traded company was around about 75 years. It's down to 15 and well, before be down to five and it's and it's because of the spiraling energies it's because um you were in a time of rapid change in every aspect of life so technological change is an obvious one to focus on so you know you could spend two years writing a business plan another two years trying to find investors and then you're finally ready to launch and the technology's changed and you haven't even noticed and what you produced is crap and then no one wants it so you don't have to anymore you've got it you've, you've got to jump so you, so you have an idea and you just jump quickly, get in there and figure it out. The, the days of planning, of trying to get it figured out before you start are well gone. And, and if you look in the high street, all the, especially here in, in, um, in, in America, you know, all the big companies, the famous companies, they're all boarded up now. Yeah. And basically, it's like not mom and pop companies, but, but you can, you can start a company, you could, you know, you, I could be in Mozambique and have a laptop and start a company tomorrow and be as successful as anybody else. But that never used to be in that way. Yeah. And what 
do you think, so you've obviously talked about, so having a, a focus on, on purpose or making a difference in terms of that, that kind of space, focus more on yeah, delivering that into the world rather than what's in it for me and how do I kind of build dependence rather than, or how do I build independence? What do you think are the other components to successfully getting big fast? So the, the, the most important one of all is a mental one. Right. And, and so most people's mentality would be goal setting and they go, okay, stepping stones across the pond. I'll get this. I'll, I'll go locally first, then regionally, then nationally. <laughs> and you know, step by step by step, you don't yeah. have time for that. Whereas we live in a, you know, in a world where you, so I, I don't use goals and I don't, I have a bit of a thing about goal setting techniques that is, I just think they're nonsense. Um, but I have a thing about it. So I, I teach a course called the science of intentions. And so what we do is we understand that time's an illusion and we crush it. And, and so what we do is we put our mentality to a point in the, what we would have previously thought of as the future. And we feel what it feels like to be that person. So what do I want? Who do I want to be? How do I want to feel? So you, you were going to mention, okay, what's it feel like to sell a company, a, a company for yeah. 5.5 million? Well, I imagined what that felt like before I started the company. And my imagination was, was my own thing. It's just, it's my motivation, my desire. I wanted to spend a whole day in pajamas. And now that was pretty much, that's, that's right. my motivation. When I sell this company, that's how I'm going to, and I focused only on that. Like the day I spent, the whole day I spend in pajamas and I got to, I got to live that. I got, I, I, my plane landed and I switched my phone on. I got a text saying, congratulations, deal is done. Um, drove to my, I had a, a place up in uh, Washington. I drove up to live in California, but I had a, like a holiday place up there. I drove up to holiday place with my wife and we put our pajamas on and spent 24 hours in pajamas. <laughs> and we went, there's a really fancy, almost two Michelin star restaurant just down below us. We went to the two Michelin star restaurant in pajamas and slippers because, <laughs> because we could. It's magic. It's, it's wonderful. I did all of those, you do all those things. So the thing, the secret is to take your mentality. That's the big difference. Instead of trying to figure out how am I going to get from here to there, you put yourself there already and let, I call, I, I use the catch, I'm English, so I have loads of catchphrases. So I use the catchphrase, let life fill in the details. Mm. You can't figure it out. You can't figure it out pointing that way. You think about anything in your life that's been amazing, right? When you look back, you say, oh yeah, if I hadn't gone to that store on that particular day and I didn't want to go, but it was, I had to, because we were out to stuff. I wouldn't have met that person. If I hadn't met that person, I wouldn't have been introduced to this person. Yeah. If I hadn't been that person, I never would have thought about that as a business. It just works out. You cannot predict that forward. Mm. It's not a straightforward pointing arrow, but when we look back, we realize how convoluted it all was. So the secret is to put yourself mentally already there. You don't have to figure it out now and just let life fill in the details and enjoy the ride to where it is that you've put yourself. That's, that's all I do with all of my companies. Seven now, seven or seven. Wow. And you, you were saying, um, so it was seven and you've said you've done multiple nine figure exits in that kind of journey. Your most recent one you said is almost a billion dollar, um, cancer drug, um, which sounds like it's the mecca of cancer drugs. So just tell us a little bit about that, Trevor. What is that product that you've developed there? So, uh, it comes about again from wanting to fix something. So my, when I was seven years old, my mother was diagnosed with cancer and she gave me six months to live. And she handled the cancer with amazing grace. She was a great inspiration to me. She's pretty much everything I, everything I've achieved in life. I can probably put down to stuff that she taught me through this period. And I remember, you know, she, 
I remember looking up at, you know, she believed in God. And I remember looking up at God and saying, you know, I'll decide when I die, not you. And it was so powerful. It stuck with me. I said, life can't throw me any challenge that could be worse than that. So I, I always remember that. And, um, although she handed her, handled her cancer with such grace, the side effects of the drugs stole her power and her womanhood. Mm. And that really bothered me as a little kid. I hated seeing that. And so always in my mind, I've wanted to find a way to have a treatment that didn't have the side effects. And everyone says, that's not possible. You can't, it's, you know, don't be crazy, you know, go back and get a big job. But I came across, because it's always been in my, my mind, I, I came in 2003, I came across a, a physician who had an invention and my job at the time was to license in these type of inventions to a biotech in Seattle. And I didn't do that. I licensed in this, this portfolio of, of ideas and, um, that company ran out of money and imploded and I'd, I'd had a front row seat at the data. I didn't understand it, but I could see the potential of it. So I started a company at the time called our new pharmaceuticals and I, and I got the people who'd invented all this stuff together. And I, and I kind of, while I was building my other companies, I was kind of drip feeding financially, um, this company. And we did indeed develop a portfolio of products that treat cancer as well as anything that's out there better than most things are out there. And it has no side effects. And so, so the, you know, cancer is a tricky, tricky disease, but cancer cells are really smart and will find a way around whatever you throw at them typically. And you know, that's going to happen. So what, what our aim was, was not necessarily to cure cancer because that's only possible today in certain circumstances but to buy people time. So a great example would be life is all storytelling. So, so I only know this guy is David because of, because of uh, privacy rules. I don't know anything else. So, so David, all he wanted was to live long enough to see his son get married mm -hmm. and he had weeks to live and he had been on six different types of smart drugs, as we call them, immunotherapy and target therapy and all the rest of it, and loads of chemotherapy. And it hit the side effects were horrendous. He'd survived through the side effects somehow, just because I think he was motivated to see his son get married and then he could go peacefully. And so he got onto our clinical trial and we you know with a few weeks left to live. And not only did he see his son get married, but he got to hold his grandson nine months later. And he eventually died a year and a half later, but he died very peacefully and very happy. And as did the family, you know, more didn't mourn him as they would have done if, you know, cause they got to experience all that with him. And, and through that whole period, no side effects, which meant that his quality of life was as good, if not better than it, than it, than it was previously. But for me, that was one thing. And so I know, I know that in doing that, you know, my mom would, wherever my mom is, she'd be smiling and say, that's a good boy. You did a good job. Um, all the investors I ever spoke to said that's impossible and crazy. And all the other companies said it's too good to be true. We're not even going to buy you. And then now suddenly you find yourself in a space where a lot of people want to buy you. Yeah. But then the question, I, well, what do they want to buy me for? Do they want to buy me because they now believe in the product or do they want to take me off the market because I'm a threat to their sales? Yeah. And so it's kind of, I'm in this kind of, uh, uh, sort of uh, tug of war in my brain right now with this thing. And so I've made the decision to go full on with this and take it all the way, but to make it a generic drug. This is not going to be a $400,000 a year drug. This is going to be free to everybody or cost to everybody. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's going to disrupt the industry. And, 
you know, if there's anyone in the industry listening to this, I'm not giving you my address. <laughs> so, it's a little risky, but that's what I want to do. Yeah, and I guess it's one of those industries, right? Pharmaceuticals, like I sit here in Australia with um, universal healthcare and we look at the US and I scratch our heads and go, wow, it seems like a crazy system, which is inaccessible. Um, yeah, just awful in some regards, Trevor. You know, when people are at their, at their worst or their lowest, it's, it's, um, there's no support structure in some, in some ways. So, um, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Complete opposite of that. And that's just media propaganda, honestly. It's the complete opposite. Best healthcare I've ever experienced in my life. And I've, yeah, my wife uh, was was born with a, a chronic disease and so it plagued her a whole life. And so she couldn't have got better care anywhere. And, and is this because you've got resources, Trevor, or actually? No, no, no. So, so I, I had my mother-in-law come and live with us uh, for a few years and she had cancer and um, ovarian cancer. She came to live with us. She got insurance immediately free from the government. It's everyone. It's the law here that you have to be given health care. What you see on the TV is just it's just nonsense. Like, and a, a great example, you know, proof of the pudding's and eating of it. My wife died in 2020, and then I met this other amazing, inspiring woman in 2022. Now we're married, and she's from Canada, and she has exactly that same opinion, Michael, that oh, because they're told that the American healthcare system is broken and it's only for the elite, all this kind of thing. She now, if she was here, she'd come on and say, it's the best healthcare system I've ever seen because healthcare is for everybody. Everybody gets taken care of. It's just it's just not a national healthcare system. And... and uh, I'm, so I, I love it. I couldn't have got better care in my life. And people would say, yeah, but you've got the money and all that. Actually, that's not the case. You know, my wife had um, open heart surgery in 2013 and she went in through the emergency room. And the law here is that if you go through the emergency room, you, money's not mentioned until you're sorted out, until you're helped. And then she was in ICU for six weeks and then I got the bill. And it literally was like one piece. <laughs> it's like everything is marked down like that. Yeah. goes all the way through it. Millions of dollars. And I get to the last page and I'm sweating and I'm thinking I need a whiskey before I look at this number. And it was $3 million. And it said patient responsibility, 0, 0.00. Wow. And that's not what people expect because they watch the news and the news tells you a different story. I never yeah. watch the news, but. So why do we get it so wrong then? Like, it's because it sounds like my, my experience of ICU in New York when I, I was feeling, yeah, I think I had like uh, kidney stones and all kind of suspected kidney stones. And yeah, I, I walked away with like a thousand dollar bill and they kind of hounded me even when I left the country. Like it was not like a, an unpleasant experience. Um, like, so what, why do you think it gets such a bad rep? And, and even like Obamacare was said to be, you know, not, not all it was cracked up to be. So, yeah, I think you get, you, you get these outlier stories that make great TV, and and you get the same probably in Australia, in Canada, and certainly in Britain. I mean, the health service in Britain. You know, I worked in it, so I can talk about it. I worked in a hospital in Europe for ten years as well as in, in the radiotherapy department, and um, you know, it's budget is always a big issue. Salaries are so small. Um, and the last thing people think the government thinks about, it was tough work. My wife and I together, she was an oncology nurse. Uh, she was actually my mom's nurse. That's how I met her. And um, together we pulled down just 12,000 English pounds a year as salary. You can't survive on that. We're about to lose our house and lose the mortgage. So, but 
the people who work in the healthcare system didn't work for the money. And so the quality of bedside manner was phenomenal. I would say the quality of bedside manner in America is not at the same level, but people that run the money, they do really well in the system. But technologically, they're really sharp. So the technical aspect, the care in the ICU was fantastic. Uh, in the UK, I saw so many mistakes being made because, you know, doctors have been working 48 hours without a break. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Fascinating. So tell us when you've done multiple exits, a, a big degree, and actually, let me, before I go there to round it out, what's it like, you know, penning a deal when you've built this company to $15 million in sales and, you know, negotiating that conversation with the, the, the buyer or the potential exit, what are they, what's that actually like? Is it as kind of as glamorous as it sounds? Someone just kind of swoops in and says, I want to buy you for hundreds of millions of bucks or... How does it actually play out? Um, the, the truth is, Michael, that nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody at any level, including me, probably you. Nobody knows what they're doing. Everyone's making it out for It's a game. It's a total game. And so someone comes in and they say, oh, you know, okay, so how, you know, this, you're supposed to do this negotiation. And, and they say, oh, so I had one company offer, well, I did, that was ridiculous. I think they offered 3 million. I had another company offer 150 million, but you could tell they had an army of lawyers and it's going to be really stressful to go through this. And and I had another company who was willing to offer somewhere between 100 and 120. We, we sold for 105.5 and then put the rest or some more of it in escrow just in case something goes wrong. And it was done so quickly and so smoothly over whiskey. We went to someone's club and we drank whiskey. We said, yeah, it makes sense. Let's do it. We'll do this. Well, I didn't really believe it was going to happen, but it happened very quickly and very easily. Then the lawyer gets involved, you know, the both yeah. our lawyer and the lawyer, and they spend weeks and weeks and weeks wordsmithing every tiny little thing. And yeah. we just had to wait for it to finish. And, and then it finished. Um, and then I still didn't think it was real because it is surreal. You go from, you go from nothing to that and you think this is you know, is it a dream? Well, I wake up in a minute. Yeah. Uh, I'm, f I'm fine that I've just made this up in my head. And then, like I said, I was due to go for a, a, a little week, long weekend and got on the plane, switched my phone off, I switched my phone back on, and then it says, okay, congratulations, it's done. And then within two hours, the money was in my bank. And I saw, I printed that out, I put it on the wall, pinned it, pinned my, my checking account balance on the wall. And stared at it probably two days and then took it down and then I was ready to do it, ready to go with the next thing then. And it was over. And so as part of the contract, one of the biggest negotiations was that I was to, I was to stay on for six months, right? Uh, you know, to, to help them, you know, to, for the transition or that, all that thing. And I, I didn't want to do that, but I, in the end, I, I thought I'd lose a deal if I didn't. So I decided to do it. And for that six months, no one ever called me. Not once. No, I spoke to me. No one, no one sent me an email. No one asked a question. They just... It, it was, it's just, it's all a silly game, basically. Oh, yeah. It's fun. It's very fun. It's always fun. I just keep doing it. Like, I'm addicted to it. I can't help it. I can imagine it is a hell of a game to, to play, Trevor. Um, awesome. Well, I think you've made, uh, if people are listening to this and not inspired to, to level it up, then I'm not too sure what, what will inspire them to give it a go. You've made it very sound, very playful, Trevor. Um, obviously you've got some amazing resources on trevorgblake.com. Um, you have been trawling your LinkedIn and YouTube, etc. So you've got a lot of amazing resources people can tap into. Um, what would be your parting words of wisdom to pick up people who've taken a look 
at this and maybe you kind of sat on the threshold of of jumping in whether they should do it or not or they've got lots of concerns and doubts and what would be your parting words of wisdom start because you don't want to be that person who three years from now watches a commercial on tv and says oh that's the idea i had three years ago you don't want to be and that's what's happening a lot i meet a lot of people who get really frustrated now <laughs> so you just start to take the advice that i took which was you don't know what business you're into you're in the business just start your business and figure it out we're really intelligent beings we can figure it all out i mean richard branson didn't have a plan uh, elon musk has never had a plan his life is chaos i just finished his autobiography biography and i felt exhausted i thought i'd done quite well in life you know until i read his biography and i thought <laughs> oh god I, I haven't even started yet. <laughs> wow um, what have i been doing with my time that's, what, that's how i felt after i finished that thing like mm. yourself to trevor you know you're better than this you can do more <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a lovely way to finish. And I love your humility, Trevor. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, we're going to link to your website uh, in the show notes. And um, yeah, Trevor, we wish you the best of luck. And thank you for the difference you're making to the, the patients who don't even know how lucky they are to have access to the resources and um, your mindset and yeah, benefactors of your approach. So thank you. <laughs>